As a real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Their teams apply local insights and global perspectives to help identify the most compelling investing opportunities. Principal Asset Management, actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff, the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. Joe, do you ever think about U.S. Treasuries? Yeah, every day. That's like, unironically, (laughs) first thing, get up in the morning, think about Treasuries. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, Treasuries are sort of the thing that the entire market is revolving around at the moment. Like, there's so many things that are correlated with yields. But I guess let me frame that question a bit differently. Do you ever think about what a Treasury actually is? Yeah, I mean, I don't have as strong like intuitions about it, but I kind of feel that, yeah, I do. But I, you know, I'm always up for learning more. Yeah, Um, well, that's what we're going to be doing in this episode. And I think it's an important topic. I mean, it's obviously an important topic, but one of the reasons it's worth looking into is because I think most people tend to think of a U.S. Treasury as, you know, it's a bond issued by the U.S. government It's unlikely to default. It acts as a sort of safe asset in the financial system. There's one other aspect of U.S. Treasuries that doesn't get as much attention, and that's the fact that it's supposed to be this huge and liquid market that's really easy to trade. Yeah, I mean, so you asked, like, what, what is a treasury and how I think about it? And on some level, I really do think it's almost like it's like the fundamental building block of the entire global financial system. Yeah. It is the deepest market. It is the most liquid uh, market. It has no credit risk, um, you know, for the most part. And so the price, there's like a purity to the price. But as as liquid as it is, every once in a while, and despite the fact that it should be like the simplest thing to trade, uh, every once in a while, it kind of breaks in this weird way and nothing ever good happens. Uh, if the treasury market is breaking. Yeah, that's right. So we've had these big uh, moments of disruption in the treasury market recently. We had, um, well, the big one was the uh, March mayhem in the market when a bunch of levered trades blew up. Uh, But most recently, we had the yield spike in February. And, you know, way before that, we had the repo madness in September, I think it was 2019, yeah. And then we had the um the flash crash in US Treasuries back in 2014, although I think it was 2015, but 2015? No, maybe I don't something around there. I yeah. should say up crash because yeah. yields went down. Yeah, okay. But the point is that 
these sort of disruptions keep happening yes. and they're happening in a really important market, as you said, and in a market that's supposed to be liquid and easy to trade. And yet it seems to be seizing up every once in a while. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Great. I can't wait. No, it's a it's a fascinating question because why the safest, most liquid asset in the world, mm. which in theory, the Federal Reserve could, uh, you know, stands ready to buy, as, you know, in theory at any moment, yeah. why it should ever seize up is sort of this like mystery to me. Like, I don't quite get why it should ever happen, but it clearly happens enough that something's going on. A $21 trillion mystery. Yes. All right. Well, we have the um, that's the size of the U.S. Treasury market, by the way. We have the perfect person to discuss all of this. Our guest for this episode is Yesha Yadav. She's a professor of law over at Vanderbilt Law School, and she's done a ton of research on exactly this topic. So Yesha, welcome to the show. Tracy and Joe, thank you so very much for having me. It's such a pleasure to be here, um, and particularly to get to talk to you about uh, U.S. Treasury markets. What can be more exciting than that? Nothing. Exactly. <laughs> Nothing could be more exciting. I agree. <laughs> All right. So maybe just to begin with, I mean, I just listed some recent, um, let's say, conniptions in the U.S. Treasury market. It feels to me like these are happening more often, but, I, you know, I haven't gone back and looked um, throughout all of the market's history. It, is that right? Like, do you think the, this sort of random bouts of volatility is happening more often? It certainly feels that way, uh, Tracy. It really does. Um, I think one of the things that has been happening in the U.S. Treasury market um, is that this market structure has changed uh, really profoundly over the last decade or so. Um, so this used to be known, I think, um, across the market as being a really super boring space. Uh, this was really the market in which um, the trading would happen over the counter by telephone, using the screens, um, re requests for quotes and so on and so forth. It was slow. Um, it was this very steady market where nothing really seemed like it could go wrong. And it was essentially dominated by the primary dealers um, that were the key intermediaries in the space, both in the primary as well as in the secondary market. Um, and what we've seen over the last decade or so and you and your colleagues at Bloomberg have reported extensively on this. Um, it's really this change in market structure that has affected how this market is working, um, that has affected um, the risks that are impacting this market, as well as al also the quality of the liquidity provision that is coming into this market and how resilient this liquidity provision is. Um, and that change really has been um, this uh, emergence, as it has been across the entire uh, marketplace, pretty much the emergence of high frequency trading um, in the interdealer space in the secondary market, which has really become the dominant form of liquidity provision. Um, and what has happened here, obviously, means that primary dealers and HFT traders now are competing a lot more fiercely. There's a great deal more technology that is coming uh, to bear in the U.S. Treasury market. It's no longer the sleepy space full of telephones. This is a marketplace that is in motion all the time. And as a result of that, we have new risks. We have uh, new uh, dynamics that are impacting the space. But the essential point here is that none of this is really that new because it's been happening in the equities and derivatives markets for a whole hell of a long time. Similar um, disappearances of liquidity, flash crashes, mini flash crashes, and so on and so forth. But now these are happening in the U.S. Treasury markets exactly as we would expect, because we've seen it in equity and derivatives, but 
Unfortunately, in U.S. Treasuries, we just haven't been focusing on it. And so it's really taken us by surprise. And so really, it feels like this is happening more often. So I want to get in, you know, we want to get into obviously like what this new structure looks like and why it's not as uh, resilient or robust as the old sleepier structure. But before we do that, why don't we just zoom out for a second? And why don't you tell us about your work and the sort of, uh, you know, uh, Tracy mentioned you're at the law school. What is the lens with which you come to this problem from and uh, seek to sort of understand problems and solutions? You know, thanks for that question, Joe, because, you know, I wonder that myself sometimes because, you know, this is <laughs> this is uh, I, I'm a law professor. I'm a really boring uh, law professor. I study market structure and the regulation of market structure. Um, and for the longest time, folks have been very Pollyannish about U.S. Treasury market structure. In other words, that it mm. will always work, um, that this will be the most resilient, most uh, robust market structure anywhere in the world. Um, as you said, Tracy, that and Joe, that this is the deepest, most liquid market in the world. That is a standard spiel that we see every single time we have a, a report from the regulators. This is the deepest, most liquid market in the world. And so you might wonder why it is a law professor really would want to look at this, uh, because what we do is look for problems, right? That's our job. The U.S. Treasury market structure, when I started studying it, you know, I was bowled over. Um, I was coming at it from the regulatory side. I wanted to understand how this market's regulated. I wanted to see if that regulation is fit for the job that it's doing today, which is regulating this extremely important, as well as technologically advancing market. And what I discovered there was a complete shock. The paradigm by which this market is regulated is like none other um, in our space. The regulatory structure, I think, deserves a conversation because it is really mm. feels like it does not work. Um, it is just not set to work. This regulatory structure, the public structure, as well as the private structure in some sense, just leaves enormous gaps. And the reason for those gaps possibly stems from the belief that this market will be perfect and will always perform and is completely risk-free. And so regulators, I feel, have really taken their eye off the ball. And that structure that we have in place today uh, really just does not exist to function to regulate a marketplace and to match the marketplace that we have mm. today. Um, and so it should not be surprising that we're seeing some of these conniptions, as Tracy <laughs> said, happening with ever greater regularity, because some of the guardrails that have been put in place in other markets just don't exist in treasuries, right? And so it should not be surprising to us that this is happening. You know, one of the things that, that you guys mentioned was in relation to the flash crash and the flash rally in 2014. And that's really set off this kind of regulatory uh, circumspection, um, this reflection on U.S. Treasury markets. And I think that's when regulators discovered that this market actually has a whole bunch of risks that they never knew existed and that they had to come to this space with a greater degree of deliberation and intention that they have done historically. But it also showed that the regulatory structure that we have today is really not set to do the job that we expect it to. And the reason for that is that this market structure uh, for regulating the, the public uh, structure for regulating U.S. Treasury markets is extremely fragmented. Unlike every other market, like equities or derivatives, this market does not have a lead regulator. There is no one person that is policing this market. We have a fragmented, loose association of four or five superstar regulators, the big top regulators for the marketplace, but none of them has a lead status, right? So the U.S. Uh, the the U.S. Treasury, um, the New York Fed, they are responsible in the auction space. 
We have the SEC um, and FINRA that are taking care of the securities market firms that trade in this space. We have the Federal Reserve, the Fed and the OCC that look after the banks that are the main dealers in this space. And so everyone is sharing a little bit of the authority, and that can be great because they bring their expertise and their insights into the space. But equally, it means that no one person always has the incentive to come forward and take a lead and set an agenda and coordinate information costs. You have to share information. You have to develop a plan for enforcement and reform. And so we should not be surprised that rulemaking that is taken for granted in other markets just does not happen in U.S. Treasuries. It just hasn't happened in U.S. Treasuries. And perhaps the starkest example of that is the lack of information in this market, right? So up until 2017, and you guys are, you know, you report on markets, you know this stuff, you are, you know, you are steeped in this stuff. It's shocking, I think, for all of us that do this to discover that up until 2017, there was no mandatory secondary reporting regime for trades in U.S. Treasuries, right? And that is kind of shocking. And what that means is that regulators have not had information to figure out what exactly is happening in secondary market activity on a granular basis. Mm. And it you know, comes as no surprise that it took a year to figure out what the flash rally was about. And even then into the 2014 right. flash rally, and even then they did not have a conclusion. We still don't fully know what caused March 2020, the, the blowout that you were mentioning, the March madness, uh, Tracy. Um, and the reason for so much of that is that this market does not have comprehensive data. It does not have granular reporting, um, even today. Um, Sorry, can I jump in there? Because this is something I wanted to ask you. So given the lack of transparency in the U.S. Treasury market, you know, even though it's the sort of bedrock of the financial system, we don't quite know what's going on with it at all times. How do we actually measure Treasury market liquidity? Like, what do you look at in your research? I'm curious because everyone has different definitions of ease of trading. So what are you watching and how has it sort of evolved over time? Yeah, I mean, that's a that's a terrific question. It's a $21 trillion question. In fact, it's a $6 billion question on a daily basis because that's, that's the liquidity that is coursing through the treasury secondary market on a daily basis compared to around $500 billion in the equity space, right? So this is supposedly a market in which we have $600 billion odd. I think that was March uh, 2020, 2021, rather. Uh, you know, we have $600 billion worth of liquidity coursing this market every day. Liquidity is hard to measure, but the idea here is that you should be able to trade without causing price impact, right? Particularly in this market, you should be able to make large trades without there being a price impact in the market structure. And that is exactly what we're not seeing. So in the context of the blowout in February, for example, we saw that the five-year and the seven-year uh, tenor just incredible amounts of movement in the spreads in just a very short period of time. And that was due to liquidity concerns. In the case of March, uh, we saw enormous price dislocations that were happening because liquidity in this market disappeared. And what that means is that, that the price changes are not happening because of fundamental informational changes, right? So of course, we expect volatility to exist in the marketplace because information will affect how price changes happen. But in the treasury market, we should not expect these price changes to happen 
because the market is becoming illiquid because dealers are not there to supply trading opportunities constantly throughout the trading day. Liquidity in this market should be taken for granted so that the price changes that are happening are because of inf informational and fundamental issues rather than because of liquidity issues because there's not enough trading opportunities for buyers to have sellers and for sellers to have buyers. So really, that's how I understand it, uh, that we are that we are relying on a marketplace that is supposed to be responding to information, not a marketplace that should be responding to disappearances of, of trading opportunities. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. So talk us through, because in theory, you know, you describe the old uh, sleepy treasury market of the dealer community and a lot of it being done by phone. And now we have this sort of like, uh, I guess, richer treasury ecosystem and HFTs and hedge funds and interdealer trading and all that stuff. In theory, you think, okay, more participants, different preferences, that would make it uh, more liquid. So what is the failure between theory and practice such that even though there is this sort of, you know, whole like flora and fauna of um, treasury participants, it doesn't translate automatically to uh, greater liquidity. And we do seem to see this rise of uh, dislocations. Like what are the leading theories for why, basically? Yeah, that's an awesome question, Joe. And, you know, I think it's one that perplexes regulators yeah. and perplexes market participants, because exactly as you said, you look at the market and, you know, there are there's $300 billion worth of daily trading in the interdealer space, which is the super liquid space where dealers are trading with each other. Right. And on a normal day, that liquidity seems so incredible. It seems so lush and robust because we do have the primary dealers still, and we do have these brand new high-frequency traders that are expansively providing liquidity throughout the trading day. Now, the um, HFT participation in the U.S. Uh, interdealer space is, is around sort of 70%, 65 to 70%. And of course, what that means is that we expect them to be available, and they are generally, to be providing liquidity robustly throughout the trading day. But what we have is a problem that liquidity can disappear just when we need it the most. In other words, that the market participants here, the automated trading, HFT traders, as well as the primary dealers, have no incentive to remain on the market when conditions get stressed. Rather, these folks now are competing with one another, right? Whereas primary dealers dominated for much of the treasury market's history, right, recent history, now the competition with primary dealers in the interdealer space means that they've been pushed out. Their margins are smaller. They're no longer the biggest players. They don't have as much skin in the game in this marketplace as they traditionally have done. And HFT experts, uh, you know, these traders tend to operate with much leaner operations. Their balance sheets mm. are smaller. 
Um, they are, they are, they are, they are more nimble. They are securities firms. They don't tend to be the banks, right? And so there is no incentive for folks to remain because A, it's super costly to be there. They're competing with each other. And when conditions get stressed, the algorithms may not perform as perfectly as they normally should. And so in those situations, it makes more sense to exit or reduce your participation or to reduce the market depth at which you participate or to reposition yourself um, to the back of the queue rather than necessarily be there to forthrightly provide liquidity. And that's what we've seen time and time again in these episodes. Uh, in March, for example, we saw 2020, we saw the HFT traders rather pull back quite drastically, very sharply in the context of that, that March episode. In this most recent episode in February, it was just a general pullback, right? In this case, the primary dealers too, the auction went horribly. As you know, one of your colleagues, Liz McCormick, has written about so wonderfully recently, right? That the auction went horribly and there was just a general pullback in liquidity at that, at that, at that moment. And so the liquidity looks great on its surface on a normal day. It looks beautiful and wonderful. But when it's time for the rubber to hit the road and when it's time for stress, I think that's when we have the greatest fear that it might disappear, causing these illiquidity bouts to happen and causing for prices to dislocate. And I think what's really, really, really kind of horrifying for me as a, as a, as a, as a person that, that studies this market and for all of us really that need this market is that the treasury market is supposed to perform exactly during periods of stress, right? This is the market that's a little bit counter cyclical. In other words, that when everything is going clusterish in the normal market, this is the market that's supposed to stand up and to be there and to be resilient and to provide liquidity so that when we all rush in there in our flight to safety, we're going to have the trading opportunities we need either to buy or sell. Hmm. So just on that note, can you talk a little bit more about the role of the primary dealers here? Because in theory, they're supposed to be, you know, the big market maker um, in the treasury market. And there's a suggestion that because of various post-crisis uh, rules and trends, they've sort of retreated from the market. And then I guess my second question is based on what you just said about HFTs retreating from the market at precisely the moment where you would want to have them there to provide liquidity. Is the answer that you somehow force primary dealers and other market makers to intermediate? And how would you actually go about doing that? Yeah, I'm so glad you asked that, um, Tracy. I mean, on, 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 the, on the first part, the role of the primary dealers here is super interesting um, because, as you said, they've been involved throughout. These folks have been, they are relied upon in the auction space, as we know. They, they have traditionally been relied on in the secondary market. And they do dominate in the dealer to client space. So there is one space, which is where the clients interact with the treasury market, where we are able to go, where we have the big institutions and they're able to go and buy and sell treasuries, the mutual funds, the hedge funds, the, the foreign governments and others that are able to obtain treasuries through the dealer to client market. And that is still dominated by the primary dealers. And again, that's a market with around $300 billion worth of daily turnover. So it is a, um, it is a solid component that we rely on for primary dealers to take care of, which is this dealer to client space, which is still very much an OTC space, a bilateral space um, in which primary dealers are the key players. Now, their retreat, as it were, competitively is really happening in the interdealer space. And so, you know, one question to ask is what's their skin in the game in the market at present? 
And it's an interesting question because they are facing balance sheet pressures. Uh, you guys had a terrific podcast a couple of weeks ago with Zoltan Pozar on the SLR issue and other issues um, that discussed the balance sheet pressures on primary dealers in the treasury market. And certainly there has been a lot of commentary here that the post-crisis reforms uh, following Dodd-Frank um, have put pressure on primary dealer balance sheets. And the other thing to appreciate here is that primary dealers are also extremely active in the repo market, right? And they're extremely active in the much larger repo market where U.S. Treasuries are now, post-crisis, the preferred form of collateral. So these folks are facing tremendous pressures on a daily basis to maintain the function of the treasury market where trillions of dollars of treasuries are essentially locked up as collateral, as well as to have treasuries and cash available to intermediate in the dealer to client, as well as in the interdealer space, as well as obviously in the auction space, um, to the extent they need cash to purchase uh, on a regular basis. So there are tremendous balance sheet pressures there. And as you discussed in the episode a couple of weeks ago, you do have the SLR issue that is now, uh, we have an answer to that, but you also have other regulations like that GSIP charge um, that mean that there is a constant balancing that is happening here which can be a little scary sometimes during crisis periods because you don't know if primary dealers have the balance sheet space to come in there and provide liquidity, to come in there and provide cash if they need to. And that is something that we need to worry about when it comes to understanding the liquidity of this market under stress. And so one thing you asked, the second part of your question, Tracy, which I think is a really brilliant question um, on that policy side, which is what do we do? Do we have what are affirmative market-making obligations attaching to both HF, the key HFT players as well as the primary dealers. And I think that's a, that should be an idea on the table. In other words, do we go back to the idea that was prevalent in the equity markets, for example, um, in the 80s and 90s, that you have these affirmative market-makers that always provide liquidity, that trade against the wind if they have to, um, that promise to stay on the market, to trade even during times of stress? Do we do that today in the treasury market because it's so important? And I think it's a good idea to have on the table. The interesting question here is how it links back to your first question, which is this balance sheet space for primary dealers, um, as well as HFT folks who, are, who do have these thinner, smaller balance sheets in general. Do these institutions today have the elasticity in their balance sheets to be able to perform in the event of a crisis and the event that they are subject to affirmative market making, because that is expensive, um, as, as you can imagine. Let me let me jump in there, because this brings to mind a question I've been thinking about. So you've talked about the sort of the fragmentation of regulation in this space. Mm -hmm. There isn't a single clear regulator. But something I've been thinking about and the sort of the tensions that led up to the SLR decision, it was sort of around this, is this sort of like intersection between uh, post-GFC regulatory decisions versus macro policy. So you have these uh, determinations. It's like, okay, banks have to hold a certain amount of uh, you know, liquid assets and have a certain amount of uh, capital and so forth. On the other hand, you have the Fed making um, non-regulatory macro decisions at a given time about the size of its balance sheet, asset purchases uh, for, you know, for um, broader uh, hitting its dual policy goals. How much is the tension uh, emerge from the fact that 
these regulatory decisions that were made about bank balance sheets didn't necessarily anticipate a decade of very expanded Fed balance sheet, uh, multiple rounds of asset purchases, very heavy treasury issuance on a historical scale, and a sort of mm-hmm. essentially this sort of like collision course between two different priorities? It's a great question. And unfortunately, I'm going to, you know, I, I, I'm going to do what my law students <laughs> do, which is take a pass on this one, because, it, okay. it, it, you know, it's not, you know, it's, it's, it's such a tough one, because I think, you know, what I, what I think has been happening here, and which your question really speaks to, is that we don't have the regulatory picture as fully as we would want it to be there, right? So right. we're making decisions without necessarily seeing the full parts of the elephant. And so obviously we come in after the 2010 crisis, clearly wanting to make bank balance sheets as robust as possible, right? Of course we want to do that. Of course we need to do that. And then of course, we also want to make sure the repo market is as secure as possible. So we, you know, in, so we, we try and make this market as dependent on treasuries as possible with respect to the collateralization of this market. And guess what? That's exactly what's happened, right? So 67% or 68% of the market in the bilateral repo market is now collateralized by treasuries. It's even higher in the reverse repo market, around 75%. So of course, you know, we've done a good job there to make these markets safe. On the other hand, we still require on the we still require the nuts and bolts of intermediation to be provided, and so we need the primary dealers to have the elasticity in their balance sheets to be able to do that. And then on the other side, we have this incredibly dynamic macro picture in which, as you said, QE Fed purchases. Um, we just have this really interesting global picture also emerging with respect to the role of the U.S. and the role of treasuries and the role of the dollar that is happening. We have so many factors to consider here, but what is missing is a regulatory structure that can do that job. The Fed, the Treasury, the CFTC, and others are all fragmented in the Treasury space. The FSOC, the Financial Stability Oversight Council created in the wake of Dodd-Frank that could coordinate, doesn't coordinate in this space. So we're not having the conversation that you want us to have, Joe, which is being able to try and put these pictures together. (laughs) Um, And so, you know, for that reason, I feel like I have to take a pass because there is no real coherence to the approach that we have such that trying to find a uh, trying to find a, a a narrative that can explain the interactions is is really difficult. Uh, you mentioned the repo market there, and um, I wanted to get your thoughts on repo market reform because it feels like this was on the radar immediately after the financial crisis because so much of you know the two thousand eight housing bubble sort of emanated from trouble in the repo market. A lot of trades were collateralized with you know subprime structured finance, uh, ABS and stuff like that. And then it all went awry. But it it also feels like the repo market hasn't changed all that much. Like the, co- the nature of the collateral has changed, but the actual functioning, if anything, seems to have become more concentrated on one or two key players. Um, what are your thoughts there? And, and how does the repo market fit into your overall research on treasuries? Great. Uh, so the repo market is mammoth. It's extremely 
important. And it's a market in which the daily consumption of treasuries and cash changes incredibly differently on a, on, on a daily basis, right? So the needs of this market on a daily basis diverge sharply from one week to the next. As we saw in the case of the September 19th uh, uh, incident, September 2019 incident, the, the repo market is liable still to sudden disappearances in its liquidity and its functioning. Um, I have a terrific colleague at, at, at Vanderbilt, Morgan Vricks, who's written about a repo market reform from the structural perspective to try and shore up some of the cash-like aspects of this market. But as you said, right, the attention on the repo market and on repo market reform has really, has really disappeared, right? Um, we have not been focusing on what we should do to make this market secure, to deal with the fact that it's still fragile, um, that it does change on a week-by-week basis, that the consumption of treasuries and cash does change. One of the proposals that's been on the table for both the secondary market as well as for the repo market is in relation to central clearing, right? Which is um, trying to bring in a greater degree of clearing into the space. We do have some. Uh, we have the tri-party repo market that does have um, some clearing arrangements and whether or not we should think about making clearing more systematically a part of this as well as the secondary market in treasury. So that is one idea that has been on the table. But again, as you say, you know, the question is, this market has become enormous. It is a market in which we are intermediating around $6 trillion worth every single day to meet the daily financial needs of financial firms across the system. So trying to get this into a clearinghouse even is something that does feel slightly intimidating and daunting and scary um, and possibly something that we could talk about um, in this conversation. But it does feel like it's become a problem from the structural standpoint that maybe has become a little too big to address at this point. So it feels like we're going on like we've done before and really using the fact of treasuries as being the preferred form of collateral to provide the safety that we need in this market. In In other words, we're looking to collateralization as the means of securing this market rather than structural reform, as my colleagues have talked about, or, you know, moving into central clearing as a way to try and protect uh, this market against risk. Can you just you mentioned that uh, central clearing and can you sort of just spell out the basic idea of what that would theoretically look like in the Treasury market and what the, I don't know, drawbacks of that would be? Yeah, I'm so glad you asked that, Joe, because, you know, clearing clearing is clearing is this amazing thing that we have in our securities markets, right? Clearing houses are, as I'm sure a lot of your listeners know, this is the fundamental structure in our market that protects all of us and that we hardly ever get to see. And that's a good thing. So, you know, central clearing houses, they are the guardians of the market. They protect us against counterparty risk failure that the, the counterparty you're trading with will not provide the securities or the cash that you need. And in return, uh, what clearing houses do is that they have a whole bunch of things that they uh, they put in place to keep the keep themselves and the market safe. In other words, they make sure that uh, the folks participating in the market provide collateral margin, that they have procedures in place to share losses between their members, um, that the clearinghouse is well-resourced um, in case even their, their members don't have the resources that they need. So this is a structure that's designed that's designed to absorb and buffer risk. And for the most part, it works really well. But as you might expect, this is a structure that's also just incredibly too big to fail. And it's one that has grown in its footprint following Dodd-Frank as we rely on clearinghouses much more systematically 
to protect the derivatives and swaps market. So the idea here has been, and, and Daryl Duffy and others have, have, have thought about to try and bring central clearing into the U.S. Treasuries market. And I think it's a, it's a terrific idea. But I think if we take a step back, it's worthwhile noting that clearing does actually exist in the U.S. Treasury markets. Unfortunately, the clearing in this market as it does exist is a hot mess. So we do have central clearing in, a, in the U.S. Treasury market, but it's a completely hodgepodge and confusing system. Central clearing does exist when you have, uh, say, two dealers, two primary dealers, for example, that trade with one another. But it does not exist, or you will not get central clearing, when you have, say, an eight, two HFTs trading with one another. So this is a patchwork of clearing that exists in the U.S. Treasury market. And unfortunately, that's a disaster, Joe. That is like the worst of the two worlds that we could possibly imagine. In other words, we have a clearinghouse that exists that partially clears U.S. Treasuries. I think there was a terrific uh, Treasury market, Treasury Practice Markets uh, Group report um, in 2018, I think, that dealt with uh, clearing in the U.S. Treasury markets. And what it described was that approximately 75% of the, I think, the interdealer market is not centrally cleared, but 25% is. And so you can imagine the risks of that, that the clearinghouse does not have a full picture of what the risks in this market are, that market participants who are members of the clearinghouse don't have a full picture of what is happening in this market, what kind of risk the clearinghouse faces. And you don't get the benefits of central clearing for the market as a whole. Um, you don't have set off and netting across all these secondary market treasury transactions that could reduce the risk that the clearinghouse and individual members face. So this is a really confusing and just an unacceptable picture for central clearing and U.S. treasuries in the secondary market space at present. So, you know, the question is whether or not we bring central clearing in here. And I think it's a solution that needs to be on the table uh, because obviously it's one that has worked in other markets. But to do this, we need to be extremely careful because we are going to be setting up the clearing houses to end all clearing houses, right, for U.S. treasury market function. And again, given the countercyclical aspect of treasury markets, that is that they have to work when every other market is collapsing, that we really need to make sure that this clearinghouse over and above every single other financial institution in the whole wide galaxy world, whatever, is the one that is safe enough to protect us. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. 
Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff the Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. So uh, I get the sense from this discussion that a lot of the problems that are happening in the Treasury market um, and the weaknesses that you described, like a lot of those are the result of similar forces to what we've seen in other asset classes. So stocks has gone through, you know, its own bout of electronification. Uh, People have had the same discussions about whether or not high frequency traders actually provide liquidity in stocks in moments of stress. But and, and to some extent, you know, corporate bonds are sort of going through this as well. But I guess my question is like, is is the problem that the treasury market is encountering these issues that aren't necessarily specific to treasuries, but the difficulty is that regulatory fragmentation that you described before? Is that a fair way of thinking about it? Like, this is not necessarily a treasury market specific problem, but the thing that makes it bad is the fact that no one's responsible for it and no one's looking at it in a holistic way. Exactly. I feel like you just wrote a law review article, Tracy. I think that was that was that was the perfect uh, that was the perfect summary there. That's exactly what you know. That at least to me, that seems to be the problem. That we have exactly as you said, seen these phenomena before in other markets. Post two thousand and ten, with the flash crash, regulators went through an incredible degree of investigation and research, and the SEC and the CFTC did such a great job in collating a whole amount of research and doing the analysis, doing a bunch of rulemaking. So we saw systems compliance and integrity, for example, the SEC rule, direct market access, all of these different rules come into place to try and shore up the resiliency of a highly uh, automated, uh, super fast market structure. And for the most part, these uh, reforms have done a great job in making this market more resilient, more robust. I think, you know, we've gone through periods of volatility, we've gone through periods of extreme stress and that market structure has held up. Unfortunately, the U.S. Treasury market, even these very, very basic reforms, just to safeguard the resiliency of the trading infrastructure, just haven't happened, right? They just haven't taken place. And the X factor that I, that I, that I put some of this blame at is this super fragmented regulatory model that we have in the U.S. Treasury markets. It's unsurprising that regulatory updating in this market is so thin because we have to get a lot of regulators, big, busy regulators in the same room to talk about these issues, to share information, to come up with a plan, to coordinate. There are a whole bunch of costs that just don't exist for the regulators that are primary regulators in other markets. They can act essentially with enormous amounts of power, control, and deference given to their actions in the equity space with the SEC or in the juridical space with the CFTC. In the treasury markets, however, they have to come together to coordinate, and there are barriers here to their coordination. So for example, there have been difficulties between regulators and sharing information. There are institutional constraints that they have in providing fulsome information to each other. In addition, we're dealing with regulators that have very different approaches at times, right? So the Fed and the New York Fed and the OCC, these are prudential regulators. They are designed to safeguard the safety and soundness of the financial system. In general, that doesn't mean that, that that means that they don't love the idea of a whole bunch of disclosure in the market to tell everyone what the uh, skeletons in this market might be, as it might create some conditions for a systemic run for a problem to happen in that market space. 
On the other hand, we have the CFTC and FINRA that are that are the securities markets regulators. They are much more into creating these super liquid markets, just disclosure and transparency and these other factors. So we have uh, differences in approach. We have differences in agency mandates. We have the need for all of these institutions to come together to develop a plan. And it should not be any surprise whatsoever that we just haven't seen the kind of rulemaking that we have in other markets. So I'm not saying that we have, you know, a huge amount of regulation here. That that's not that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that we at least need to have a regulatory structure in place that is geared towards providing even the most basic reforms that are tried and tested in other markets, that work in other markets, but that are sadly missing in US Treasuries and that leave this market therefore very vulnerable to systematic fragility. Yesha, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, That was great. Thank you guys so much for having me. I just completely, I wish you could have seen me in my little room. My arms are flailing everywhere. I was going a little crazy. you know, you have such great questions and, you know, I, I could talk to you guys for like another hour. Like this is, you know, this is so cool. We'll definitely have to do it again. Yeah, I would love it. And thank you guys so much. I mean, it was so cool. Your questions were just brilliant. Your writing. Uh, um, too kind. Some of the reporting that you guys do has been so important to, to the writing I've done. I could not have got the information and insights I did without that. Um, and honestly, I just have so much fun. It's, I just thank you so oh, much. That's great. Thank, thank you. you. So, Joe, I thought that was a really fascinating conversation and such an important one, because as you laid out at the very beginning, this is an ultra significant market for, well, for the entire market. And it's sort of the thing on which everything else rests. It's the, you know, the benchmark risk free rate. And and there is this assumption. I mean, Yesha touched on it. There is an assumption that in times of trouble, you should be able to liquidate yeah. a risk position and trade it for something considered safe, which you know would usually be a U.S. Right. Treasury bond. And if the market can't serve that function, it seems like that's a bit of a problem. Yeah, absolutely. Like this idea that's like okay, like in time, you know, normal times, Treasury trading is fine. And higher volatility times actually, you know, victorizes treasury trading is still probably fine. But then this idea that it's like you hit some new threshold where the volatility in last March was the clear example gets so high that this uh, sort of like safety valve market that exists out there, even that starts to break, then it becomes a real problem and can't sort of perform the, I guess, counter cyclical function that you hope it would. And of course, we had to we saw the Fed step in. Uh, last year, it definitely seems like if they're that level, whenever it is, we don't hit it that often, but we seem to hit it enough that it's, uh, you know, that it's an issue that needs addressing. Yeah, absolutely. And it is kind of frightening that, as we discussed, we still don't know exactly why these volatility issues keep propping up or, you know, why we are getting these moments of drama right. in the market. And that's kind of I mean, that's a little bit frightening because it is this $21 trillion market um, that kind of touches on everything else. It seems weird that people aren't um, more dedicated to tracking it and sort of figuring out what's going on. But I guess that speaks to the regulatory fragmentation that Yesha was describing. 
It still seems like there's more that, like, I don't know, maybe the Fed could do to treat treasuries as a true mm. risk-free asset. And I know we talked about this yeah. a little bit in our uh, discussion with uh, Josh Younger, but obviously reserves are sort of like the ultimate, ultimate risk-free asset because they're all fungible, they're all identical, and treasuries are close, but because they have different liquidity uh, uh, questions and different maturities and stuff, they're not quite the same. But it still feels like perhaps there could be more uh, done such that, like a standing reverse repo facility, something such that at any time someone could be guaranteed by the government to get uh, liquid cash for their treasuries. It seems like that could be part of the answer, but who am I? That's just that's just my yeah. that's just my two I mean, cents take. No, no, no. I think you're right. And I think it does feel like the Fed is taking more of an interest or um, I guess a more proactive approach yeah. to the Treasury market overall. Like it so I've said before that like I think the Treasury like smooth functioning of the Treasury market is now a sort of unspoken um priority, if not target for the Fed. Um, yeah. And I think that's right. And I think they're going to be looking at it more and more as these issues crop up. Yeah, no. And, and it should be. I mean, look, uh, you know, the 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 entire yield curve, as I see it, should be understood as mm. a policy instrument. And you have like the shortest, lowest yeah. duration assets are reserves and then the longest duration, like way out on the curve. But it all is an expression of policy. And I think this gets to the question that I asked about, like this sort of intersection between macro policy and regulatory policy, because. You know, it's like, all right, we're running large deficits because we're running counter-cyclical fiscal policy right now. We're running a large balance sheet policy mm -hmm. on the part of the Fed. So at some level, the, regula the regulatory regime has to acknowledge that the fiscal and monetary regime needs to use these tools from time to time and sort of recognize that. But again, I guess that gets to the answer of like, well, who is the individual regulator that's going to make that call? And we still don't have that. Yeah. All right. Um, shall we leave it there? Yeah, let's leave it there. All right. This has been another episode of the All Thoughts Podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. Follow our producer, Laura Carlson. She's at Laura M. Carlson. Follow the Bloomberg head of podcasts, Francesca Levy, at Francesca Today. And check out all of our podcasts at Bloomberg under the handle at podcast. Thanks for listening. there. It's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff the Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.